Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh36. We have three hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, and the website spamprimer.com to help you get your mailbox back. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of MacMost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials pretty much every day. I also make mobile games, and you can find those at CleverMedia.com. And I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo behind the appropriately named site, AskLeo.com, where I help people with their technology problems and hopefully help them gain a little bit more confidence with today's technology. So, what's been going on this week? Gary, you Gary have you been gone a, or something? Yeah, you've yeah. had an interesting, tri- or interesting time. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, I just got back from a big family vacation, and we did uh, Central Europe, uh, Central European capital cities was our theme. So, uh, we started with Venice, and then did uh, Vienna, Budapest, and Prague. And um, it was kind of... I mean, you know, those are big cities and big places to go visit and everything in Central Europe, but they all are, you know, interestingly connected in different ways through history and, uh, and other ways. So it was, it was pretty cool. Traveled by train, you know, to each city and, uh, saw lots of cool stuff. Saw some geeky stuff, of course, as I, as I try to do, like in Vienna, I visited the Globe Museum, the world's only Globe Museum. Um, a museum that has globes, like globes, the yeah. maps of the earth. Yep. And it uh, was a history, you know, a lot of history there of globe making and how they were made originally and how they're made now and um, how they evolved. I mean, cause you know, the globes predate, you know, the European rediscovery of North and South America. So there were some globes there that didn't even have all the continents on them. And, um, you know, just, uh, and also c- celestial globes, and mm. other planets that you know that it really did reach out in all directions in terms of cartography and globe so that was a pretty cool museum to see in vienna also in prague there's an apple museum it's the only one as far as i know and it's basically somebody's private collection of pretty much every piece of hardware apple's produced since the apple one uh, all the way to 2012 you know every iphone ipad mac then they ran out of money stuff. so no that was when it opened <laughs> oh so, okay so I think they designed the entire thing to have this timeline of like the beginning to 2012 and, you know, museums, it's hard once you've designed everything around timelines to then add to the end. So, um, but it was great. It was great to see all that hardware on display and great to see a museum that really was based on like, you know, modern technological artifacts you know we you know it wasn't just like and then apple came out with this it was like here it is here's the mac se or the special edition mac 20th anniversary that kind of thing so that was kind of a cool thing and it was very um steve jobs oriented so it was a lot about steve jobs there as well and some some things from uh from him like paribus sneakers and stuff like that um so that was cool uh yeah, I got other stuff to say about it. You know, if we have time towards the end, uh, other cool technological stuff. But it was a great trip. Took lots of great photos. Took 2,000 photos. Wow. Um, only 2,000? Only only 2,000. <laughs> uh, mixed with my iPhone and my Canon uh, Rebel T3i. Mm-hmm. On oh, the that's photos. the one I have. Yeah, and it, it's a great camera because so many people have it. And there's 
so many, you know, I mean, lenses and there's so many tutorials online for taking odd photographs and stuff with it. So it's just a standard. But um, I found it interesting, like I would take for, say, a sunrise sequence, I would take, you know, maybe 30 or 40 pictures with my Canon and, and then just because I had my iPhone on me and you, you know, it's a different lens. I would take like two or three pictures with the iPhone. And I think my favorite picture out of the, the whole trip, at least for sunrises was one of those iPhone ones just had richer color. And, uh, uh I saw that coming deeper. Yeah. So, you know, that was interesting. It's like, here I am saying, okay, I am going to take the camera with the real lenses on it, uh, mm-hmm. on this trip and take pictures with it. But I really kind of felt sometimes the iPhone actually did a better job. And nighttime was another time when I felt the iPhone did a much better job of collecting light when it was just dark streets with street lights and people. And um, the iPhone pictures usually turned out better than the, the uh, big camera. So it's kind of funny. I've been, you know, playing um, with my camera a little bit more lately as well. I wanted to up my, uh, my photography game. And one of the things I've been doing is playing around with, uh, obviously pictures of corgis i've been taking <laughs> a, a picture a day basically and posting them on instagram and it's turned out to be a mix between you know uh, photos with the quote-unquote real camera the nikon and then my uh, my google pixel pixel xl one of the you know the original model and i gotta say there's there's a lot to be said for convenience and opportunity I mean, if I'm sitting at my table and my dog's looking particularly cute, it's easier to reach in my pocket and grab a camera and ha- and end up with a really relatively high-quality picture that looks yeah. really good. Um, it's not to say that the that it outshoots the Nikon. What I miss on the uh, on the Pixel is uh, optical zoom. I, yeah, I, that's that's the big thing that I miss on on that because there's just some things that, sure, I can take a picture of this panorama when I you know or this this scene when all I really want is like the little piece in the middle, but anything that would get me the little piece in the middle highlighted just looks awful because you're having to do a digital zoom on it. It just never never works out. Yeah, I agree that 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 is the main benefit of the, the big camera was the zoom, and you know there are. There are lots of rumors now, uh, both you know the Mac and Android world of camera or, or phone bodies coming out that are better at adding these lenses because you can, of course, get clip-on lenses. Right. Um, and I've never really, I have some of these. I've never really been happy with them. You're kind of estimating that you know getting the lens right in the center when you clip them on, and or I've done things where I've had a special case, right? You know, and the case fits perfectly on it, and then as soon as you get a new phone, the case it doesn't fit anymore. Right. Um, so, but I've heard rumors uh, that uh, Apple is thinking maybe about a future iPhone that actually has something in the body that that provides for lenses to be attached. All they really need is to th- is a threaded ring, threaded That's ring all- or magnets. In a special um, way. I suppose the problem yeah. with magnets is it seems like you'd still be um, at the risk of um, being being off center or being, you know, not having it positioned properly. But it depends. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it'd be neat if they if they did something like that. That would and it would be doubly neat then if the rest of the industry happened to standardize on the same thing, which of course you know right. isn't going to happen. Well well, I don't know. It would take like <laughs> a big company like Apple right. to, to do it and say, and here's like the standard and then Suddenly now, um, you know, Samsung and all the rest could join in and say, well, ours will support that standard too. And then you've got all these lenses out there yeah. and, and that would be great. But would until be nice. then, agree. Yep. 
until then you gotta yeah it's, that's and it's, it's it's a pain when especially you're traveling by train and trying to travel light and everything like that i mean mm -hmm. probably the biggest thing maybe besides my laptop and maybe actually even including my laptop really uh, that i was traveling with was my camera with the lens right um you know so it's unfortunate yeah but. i have it's funny i've got two nikons there's one um, the quote-unquote big one. And yes, it is significantly heavier. It's a full-frame sensor, that kind of stuff. Um, takes gorgeous pictures. But if I'm going to go out somewhere, if I'm going to be on foot um, you know, for any length of time, it's the other one, the D5300, which is you know, the, the smaller sensor, much lighter camera. It's, I'm sure it's a, basically a plastic body or more plastic parts, so it's significantly lighter. Um, and it takes wonderful pictures, too. I mean, it's, you know, there, you can tell the difference, but for a, a lot of them, it's a matter of uh, do you accept the slightly lower quality versus not having a picture at all, you know, so. Right, right. So, so yeah, so 2,000 pictures. Uh, we joked, my wife and I would joke about, you know, using film, um, you know, the days of film. I'd mm -hmm. come back from maybe doing a, a photo walk, and she'd say, how many pictures did you take? And I'd say, oh, I took four. <laughs> you know, like pretending I was, you know, four using rolls. Films. No, just four, like four. So I have 20 left on this roll. And right. she's like, Oh, how many rolls is so oh, this? I've only got one roll left for the trip after this one, you know, just trying to reminisce about how it was when you would take these rolls of 24 and 36 with you on a trip. When and, I was um, rationed 15 years old, um, I went to, uh, to the Netherlands to visit relatives for, well, it would have been my second trip, but um, it was also when I was just getting into photography and I took, um, 20 rolls of film with me, I think it was. So, you know, 400 pictures or thereabouts. Um, and that was at that time, a lot of pictures. Yeah. And I just know the difference, right? I mean, it's one of those things where for good or for bad, um, back then you thought about each picture before you took it. Whereas nowadays, you know, you sort of point and hold down the shutter and you've got continuous release turned on. So, you know, one of the 20 that I just took over the last three seconds is going to turn out. Yeah, exactly. The, um, uh, I, took, see, I took 10 rolls with me on a cross-country road trip after college. And, uh, and I got some great pictures from that. Some of the best pictures I've ever taken, you know, and I had to think about each individual shot. And I remember too getting them developed. You had the. Did you ever do the mail away? You know, develop thing. I have done that. Yep. Put it in the pouch. So I actually took with me on that trip since I was staying in the. I was in the United States the entire time, and I took those envelopes and they were pre-addressed. I'd take the time before the trip to write them out and pre-filled out with a check in each one because <laughs> you had to write a check and stick in the envelope with it and stamped. And I don't as, miss those days. <laughs> and, and as I finished a roll, because I was so like, you know, but so today we think about like SD cards and backing, you know, cloud backup of your photos as you travel and everything. And uh, then I was like, oh, what happens if I take like 10 rolls and somehow something happens to them before I get home? So each roll as I finished it, I would drop it in one of these envelopes, seal it and drop it in a U.S. postal box. Mm hmm. And the great thing was that, you know, so all my photos were getting developed as I was on this trip. And then when I actually got home, all but the last roll, I think, already had shown up uh, at home. And I was able to see all my pictures right away, which, of course, you know, it's funny to think of. It's like, wow, I was able to see, see them right away when I got home. And, of course, now you can see them right away after you take them. Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it sounds like you had a really good trip. 
yeah, yeah. It was a great, uh, great trip. Learned a lot, experienced a lot. And uh, do you have a favorite city? You know, I don't. And it's a weird thing. You think between those four cities, one would clearly be the winner. And and you'd also think, well, okay, if I didn't have a clear winner, maybe there was one that kind of dropped off the bottom. No, I can't make up my mind. So many people have asked me that. Uh, each one, the, the ones I, th- I thought Venice was going to be great, and it was. But in the others rose past my expectations to match it. So, you know, the, I mean, the architecture in all the cities was amazing. You know, that's actually yeah. the sign of a really good trip, right? When you can't pick out a favorite yeah. because it was all great. Yeah. So. I, and I, Budapest just amazed me how scenic it was. I never really even thought about, you know, that it would be so scenic with the river and the dramatic, you know, hills on one side and architecture along it. It was just like, wow. And then Prague has a, a similar kind of setup with the river, um, just at a kind of a different scale. And, uh, and Vienna was just, it was, it's huge. I didn't expect it to be so big. And, um, and also in the architecture and the streets and, and everything was just, uh, was amazing. So yeah, I didn't have any disappointments in the trip. Uh, it's funny for, uh, for both Prague and Budapest in the last, oh, I don't know, I'll say 10 or 15 years, you see them as filming locations significantly more frequently than, than in the past. Uh, you know, a lot of like Bond films and so forth yes. and getting filmed in locations like that. And yeah, the films are gorgeous and you don't realize it. Yep, yep. That's because the places they're filming actually are gorgeous. Well, I did actually end up at a lot of movie-related things. Like, for instance, um, in, uh, uh, in uh, where you know, I went on the the third man Ferris wheel, right? You know, the Viennese uh, great Ferris wheel or whatever. It's in, you know the movie The Third Man, and in pretty much every movie that's shot in Vienna, <laughs> it's, it has this. Like, you can look at a list of movies that use this Ferris wheel, and it's, it seems like everybody always ends up shooting there. And then in Vienna, we went to a side trip to Salzburg because, of course, The Sound of Music was filmed there. <laughs> and we went on a little tour to took each of the, the places. But I, that kept coming up, a lot of different places where scenes were shot for different films in, in all those cities. Well, Prague and Budapest both are used as like, uh, you know, you can go back in time in some places there. If you want to shoot a film that took place you know, two, whether it was 200 years ago or during the Cold War or something, you could find streets that really cut, still kind of look like that um, there. So I can see why they're used for... Uh, I wonder if those are like city planning decisions. I don't know. I, well, I think it's just the old architecture. You know, nobody's going to replace these beautiful buildings. Right. Um, you know, uh, people repurpose them, but the outside architecture remains pretty much the same. And a lot of the streets are simply too small to make, you know, to improve for cars. They're pedestrian only or they're too small to actually like be through ways. So there's like one lane or something like that. So, and then Venice itself has, hasn't really changed much in hundreds of years at this point. Um, Cause it's been a tourist city for a couple centuries now. Right. So it's, it's, there aren't any new buildings really, uh, you know, in Venice. So it's pretty much, and there are no cars. So you can't tell as you're going down the street, you know, the, the telltale sign is you see a, a modern car, you know, what era you're in. Right. Um, but in Venice, there's no cars. There's just these gondolas that have really haven't changed much. 
Um, I was going to say, oh, look, that's a 2017 model gondola. Yeah, exactly. There, there really aren't. <laughs> and even when you do see private boats and stuff, they really, I didn't see very many like, oh, that's a new speedboat coming down one of the, you know, it's like, no, that could be 70 years old, you know, or it could, could be recent. It's just a basic boat with an engine on the back. You know, the guy's going home from work or whatever. So, so very cool. Yep. Cool. So Randy, what you been up to? Oh, I, I wanted to find out if Gary caught up with all the shows because he missed three while he was gone. Uh, yeah, I have to admit that I did fall behind. I good intention. Uh-oh. I listened. I, I that first show of the three, I listened to the next day. Um, I was good on that, and then you know it's like I was getting up just early because you're on vacation with your lovely wife and yeah. exotic locations, and it's not like you had a multi-hour plane trip on the way back to perhaps you know catch up. Oh uh, yeah, well you know <laughs> the, the thing, the thing with those overseas flights is you have all these good intentions of like what you're going to do on a flight, but when you get on it and it's like nine hours till we land, you just want to numb your brain with whatever TV or movie, or if you could fall asleep, you know, you just want that time to disappear. So I guess the good news is that you don't consider this podcast mind numbing. Exactly. It would have, it would have, it would have made <laughs> time go slower because I would have been interested rather than some, you know, mindless movie on the screen in front of me or, or just trying to doze off a little bit if I could. Well, that sounds like a testimonial, except it's from one of the hosts. So what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I've been mentioning that uh, we've been trying to buy a house, and the most recent one uh, turns out the uh, owners aren't really very motivated sellers, and uh, they actually kind of pushed us away, even though we gave them a 99% offer. So they want every buck, I guess. Uh, Apparently, it's the – well, I shouldn't uh, shouldn't bad talk anybody because we're – Perhaps going to go back to them. We're not sure yet, uh, but we backed away while we regrouped and hmm. um, you we'll know, just some, see. Sometimes when you make an offer like that and they reject it, it's because they realize too late that their that their price was too low. And now, well, like, this oh, one's been on and off the market for three years, so they no, really? they've experimented with a lot no. of different prices. No, hmm. so they're, it's not that situation. I've but they're also not they're also not motivated to move if they if they if they've got three years to play around with this. Well, except that they have moved out already. Oh, and they're still not. You know, they just. I I think it's the uh, the kids that are uh, actually driving the boat here, and and the the people that moved out are uh, you know. Elderly now, so right, right. hard to say exactly what's going on. Yeah, I, th- well, I think that's probably true. I think there probably is something else going on, a factor yeah. that you don't know about. Yeah. Certainly. I have to say you shared the listing with me earlier, and, and the, the house looks gorgeous. I mean, it just it really does look like a nice place. So it would be nice if you ended up coming back to that one way or another. Seemed like a good location. Yeah, we have a couple of other options, so we're not, uh, we're not suffering for uh, things to, to look at. Cool. Yeah. Well, at this end, it's been a really boring week. Uh, <laughs> You've been so, saying that a lot lately. I have. I have. Well, that and, you know, boring and, and things that I don't want to talk about in public. But the, uh, uh, let's see, what's, what's the most recent stuff? World of Warcraft launched their expansion this afternoon. So, of course, there were a few minutes spent on that. Oh, uh, yeah. 
I finished, um, we finished watching Orange is the New Black, the most recent season. I don't know if either of no you... No spoilers. I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm binging through. I'm on nine. So but probably okay. by the time, by the end of the night, I may actually get through it. Yeah, there's only 13 episodes. I know. And, uh, so, yeah. Oh, nine, so nothing. So but, I, won't, I won't spoil it for you. But, you know, um, yeah, I forgot you're a World of Warcraft player. I am. I, I really like their ad campaign. <laughs> I think it's a really clever campaign. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, you know me; I don't get really personally invested in these things. Um, I mean, let's face it. I mean, I worked for Microsoft for eighteen years, and yet I'm not personally invested in in Windows. If somebody bad mouths Windows, I don't get all pissed off. I'm using a Mac as we stand here. The point is that that. There are people that just get so bent out of shape at, at the changes that maybe happen to World of Warcraft with each expansion. Um, the, the kinds of things that are going on, they just, oh, this is the worst thing ever. You know, those kinds of, those kinds of reactions. Um, my little dabble in it this afternoon is that, uh, yeah, you know, looks like kind of fun. Looks like it'll, it'll be, uh, be a little bit more interesting and give some new, uh, some new content. And didn't they relaunch the classic game? That I believe is still in progress. Oh, okay. Um, they, they picked, it's funny, there was actually a weird history about that. Some um, players actually managed somehow, and I don't know how they did this, uh, to reconstruct servers that supported the original game. In other words, it wasn't Blizzard, it was like third party you know, game players who actually just sort of did this behind, their, behind everybody's back. And, of course, Blizzard said, no, 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 that's, that's our content. You can't do that. But appara- and, and shut them down and actually shut them down. I can't blame them. In the process, they discovered that, oh, there's interest in this, where I'm sure, you know, the S in interest has a little dollar sign. Um, so my guess is that Blizzard took, there was set aside some folks and then did a little bit of investing and in setting aside some servers to actually reconstruct the original or one of the, close to the original uh, World of Warcraft. The bigger announcement I think was about a month ago where they decided exactly which version of uh, the original Warcraft they were going to, uh, they were going to bring online because the actual World of Warcraft on the day it released, well, okay, it was okay. Yeah, probably pretty cruddy. It wasn't what people were expecting, but then you also don't want to go completely to the next expansion. So somewhere in between there is the the line in the sand that they drew, and apparently they're in the process of putting all that together and letting people uh, letting people. What I'm really interested in is, you know, obviously I'm a monthly subscriber. Actually, I pay annually, but it's a monthly subscription to uh, to World of Warcraft. I'm curious if they'll let um, if the original will be included. In other words, do I get my choice of playing now the current version of Warcraft, or do I, you know, do I also have the option to go back to? Uh, uh, to I'll try bet it. there's going to be an extra little charge. I mean, you may not be the full charge, but right, it wouldn't surprise me either way. Actually, It'd be nice if they didn't, but it it wouldn't surprise me if they did. Um, at any rate, it's it's you know been interesting stuff, and and you know it's one of those things where I view Warcraft as an opportunity to blow off steam by killing virtual monsters. There are so many worse things I could do to blow off steam that this one seems relatively safe. So. I'll, I'll bet that there's probably a, a good portion of the audience interested in this, you know, original version that just wants something that doesn't change. You know what I mean? It's possible. It's, it's like, cause you know, when you play a game like this, it's like every year there's going to be an update, you know, things are going to evolve and change and, 
you know, but having something that's just, you're told not going to change, it's just going to be like this forever. And the problem is um, that these games have progressions and they have storylines and they have, you know, a limited number of things you can do. You know, there's this many quests and that many achievements and, you know, that kind of thing. And at some point, you're going to run out of new things to do. All you can really do is churn doing the old stuff over and over again. And I can't imagine that that's going to be pretty, you know, very interesting either. So I don't know how they're going to deal with that because you're right. It is a trade-off. Obviously there's a lot of people that are clamoring for the way it was, but whether that means the way it was or the way it was and then never changes. um, I don't know. We'll see. It'll be interesting. I bet you people, you know, the, just the multi-user experience, you know, it's, it will change because there's different people on there. Mm-hmm. And you could travel and talk to different people and make your make up your own fun. You know, I, I think there's something to something to that. I, sure. I, I'm not saying there's a lot of people. I'm not saying it's going to be like a blockbuster success. I'm just saying there's a there's thousands of people probably that would just love. Yep. Just yep. just that. I agree. And it, the real question from for Blizzard's you know thing to, to think about is how many people are there like that. And who do we, who do you lose based on which decision you make? If you make the decision never to change, do you lose this group of people? If you start rolling out changes, do you lose that group of people who, you know, who do you serve the most by which decisions you make? It'll be, like I said, it'll be interesting to see how, you know, how it plays out, what their, what their choices will be. And honestly, how long it'll last. Well, they should make like a, maybe they should make it like Groundhog Day. <laughs> where, but it's Groundhog Year. It's like so every year. It's just you know here there are going to be certain storylines and things that play out, right? But it then resets every year. So and you have to reset your character every year. So if you enjoyed that experience of that first year of playing World of Warcraft, you know here it's going to be like this one year experience, and then everything resets. You get to and, do it again and again. But hey, but again, there's again people I think that would love. <laughs> Love doing that. I mean, there are people that play standalone, non-multiplayer games, and they start over again. I know I've done it, um, you know, the Baldur's Gate series of games. Mm-hmm. You know, you, and it's like a lot of these. You choose your character. So, you, you know, I'm going to be a fighter, and then you play through. And then it's like, that was a lot of fun. I like to go and play through again a year later, but this time I'm going to be a wizard. Oh, right. Well, you could do that in Warcraft now, right? Yeah. You can have multiple different characters of multiple different types. And, and absolutely, when I got bored playing my main character, uh, I rolled another one and just went through the content. And the content's different depending on what kind of character you're, role, you're running. But um, even that has its, um, its limitations and its caps. But yeah, there's, there's certainly ways to, to make that much at least interesting if you want to do it. Ah, uh, you're, you see, you're talking me into actually wanting to play now. So we should change the subject before I, you, uh, so addicted. <laughs> if, if, if you end up deciding to go down that path, let uh, me send you a link because I may get some perks from yeah. inviting no, your friends to Warcraft. I got way too much stuff to do over the next couple of months. Hey, if I can squeeze it in. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm juggling so many things. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah. So. Well, maybe when I'm done with Orange is the New Black, I could move on to there you go. Uh, that, using that time for that. So, All right. So, yeah, like I said, my, my life, aside from, from uh, whacking away at uh, 
virtual monsters has been relatively quiet and productive and peaceful out here. Cool. So we actually have a breach of the week. And I got tired of the old sound effects, so I recorded a new one. (laughs) And here it is. Breach of the week. So as it turns out, um, the, the headline here is AWS error exposed GoDaddy server secrets. There's a, a little bit to unpack about this. One is that AWS error, it's the standard error we've heard about before where they're using Amazon's simple storage service, also known as S3, to store data. It's nothing more than a, a, a cloud data storage service used by uh, many companies. I use it myself. A couple of the uh, the websites that I maintain are actually hosted directly on Amazon S3, uh, part of Amazon's just humongous uh, cloud services branch. It's one of the places where they make just a, a bunch of money um, in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think. At any rate, um, and the the classic error is to put something onto the AWS storage service and basically get the permissions wrong so that anybody who knows where to look can find your data. Naturally, um, especially after the rash of AWS uh, S3 errors that, that seem to have been very common in the last, I'll say, 12 to 18 months, one would think that um, most people, most companies, have done a little bit of an audit as to how they're using AWS. And in fact, AWS has themselves done a little bit of an audit and they're making it a little bit more prominent when you have what they call a bucket that has uh, open privileges to the world. So that's neither here nor there. You know, they, they didn't, the, for me, the big takeaway from this one, GoDaddy uses AWS. We think of GoDaddy as a hosting service themselves. They actually provide Uh, online storage and websites and all those kinds of things, in addition to things like domain registration, which is where their business actually started. But as it turns out, uh, they were or are, I assume, still using AWS for at least internal GoDaddy storage because the documents that apparently were made public by accident revealed some of GoDaddy's internal structure, technical structure, how their servers are organized, how the how websites are deployed, a bunch of different you know, interesting things from a purely technical and geeky uh, standpoint. Nothing directly impacting end users. For example, you know, nobody found my GoDaddy account number, username or password or anything like that. But to me, the big reveal here is simply that a huge, huge ISP and service company like GoDaddy is actually using AWS. And what it does is it really underscores just how prevalent, not just cloud computing and cloud storage is, but how big a player AWS is, how big a player Amazon is in the cloud services industry. Uh, they, you know, Like I said, you think of them as a place to buy books and groceries and whatever else, but in reality, um, there's an amazing amount of things that you probably use every day that are, in fact, hosted out at Amazon Web Services. I see this one as a little bit different from the usual breach of the week that we talk about that has to do especially with Amazon Web Services. 
in that usually it's the company that's not doing a good job of securing their own data. In this case, Amazon admits that the bucket in question was created by an AWS salesperson to store pr uh, prospective AWS pricing scenarios with, while working with a customer. So Amazon screwed this up, not GoDaddy. Awesome. Yeah, I, I missed that point when I read through the information. So, However, um, when, they, when they did notify uh, this, this uh, security company called UpGuard, found it on June 19th, but it was over a month before GoDaddy responded to the advisory, eventually sealing off the bucket on July 26th. So they didn't do a very good job of responding and securing their own data, which face it, it's trade secrets and stuff that they probably don't really want out there. It fascinates me sometimes about the, the delay that so many companies have. This is what we call responsible disclosure, where you basically, you discover something like this, a vulnerability or an oversight, and you report it to the company privately, you know, not publicly, but privately, so that they have the opportunity to do something with it before the information goes public. And they don't, they ignore you. And the the only thing I mean, this isn't the first time that's happened. That ha that's happened, you know, from Microsoft. Many times, yeah. Lots of different companies that have that problem. And one would think, especially given the frequency with which there are issues that are made public, uh, that they'd be doing a better job of paying attention to those channels. Now, the only thing that I can think of is that those channels are probably congested with buckets, so to speak of reports or information or even spam that uh, somebody has to wade through in order to determine whether or not a reported issue truly is real. And I'm, you know, that's the only, that's the only reason I can think of that there would be a delay. A month delay seems a little excessive, seems more than a little excessive, but um, uh, that's, that's what comes to mind anyway. And I had the same reaction is that it's not that they didn't get the message is that, the right person didn't get the message. It wasn't one of their security people or somebody who realized the implications of, uh-oh, we should fix this right now. Right. I know that in Microsoft's case, there are people who, you know, they'll probably, they will find any avenue to try and contact people at Microsoft because they accidentally deleted a mail in their outlook.com folder or something like right. that. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that these folks at the responsible disclosure contact address probably need to wade through. And there's a bunch of that. I can imagine that there's just an incredible amount of that. So like I said, I can cut them a little bit of slack for that. But to the extent that that becomes a problem, that's a problem in need of a solution because that's, that's something that, that they really need to, uh, um, to address and be able to react more quickly on. You know, back to your point about being surprised that uh, AWS was so big that even GoDaddy would be using them now. Um, I did a quick search because I fully expected, you know, when ranking the cloud services that AWS would be at the top and number two would be far off. Um, and I'm surprised to find that that's kind of true, but there is one other player that is actually just a tiny bit above AWS. And that's Microsoft. I was going to, I was wondering if it was going to be Microsoft Azure because I know that yeah. they've been pushing that really, really hard. And my, my feeling is, you know, you know, reading a lot and talking to people in the startup industry that probably AWS is used a lot for startups and small companies and individuals, you know, and like, you know, 
there's so many different pieces of software I use that there's like an AWS storage option for this, you know, it's like individuals wanting to use cloud storage. I think AWS probably rules there. And I think Microsoft probably rules in big corporations, you know, that have huge cloud service stuff that normal people never even have to deal with. I was going to say that it, it would make sense to me for Microsoft to win the enterprise, but by that yeah, I mean enterprise. internal facing, right? You've got a large yep. company that's storing all of their internal data in a cloud somewhere. Yep. Um, AWS probably does better on the external side. So if you've got a large company that's providing a publicly accessible service, like I think Dropbox, Dropbox, I think, I could be wrong, but I think that they're still running off of AWS. Probably. And that's a huge, huge service, but it kind of sort of makes sense given what they're doing. So, um, yeah, it, Microsoft doesn't surprise me, but that, I would expect it to be much, much more about the enterprise than about uh, the services you know, we might talk about here on a day-to-day -day basis. Right, exactly. So, mm -hmm. and, and, and I wondered if IBM was in there, and so I just looked it up. Yeah. Uh, ZDNet and in February said yes. Microsoft Commercial Cloud is number one. Amazon very closely behind. Amazon, and IBM is third, but about half of what Amazon is. We're looking at the same article, yeah. So Yeah, then um, Oracle, then Google Cloud, and then Alibaba. I was wondering where Google Cloud would be, because I know that they're also trying to play harder in the cloud services industry. I, I, uh, I, and, of course, these numbers are based on revenue, but that's probably the best measure we have, and it probably approximates actual use because um, usually you you pay for use in right. the cloud world so and and prices are probably pretty compatible i can't imagine any of these being too far off from each other in terms of price um i will say that well at the consumer level the level that i play at um dropbox was half the price of aws for storage so at most you're probably looking at a factor of two uh, between the two, I'm sure you're not talking orders of magnitude different, I'm sure. Now, do you, I don't know how much you guys know about this, but I mean, I always had the impression that Amazon started AWS for themselves. Yes. And because uh, they needed it and yep. then uh, kind of said, well, we'll make this a service and other people can buy into it too. Is that? That's my understanding as yeah. well. And that's that mine they, also, yeah. They started it to basically run the bookstore, and then all of a sudden they realized they had something that other people might be interested in. Cool. Now it's like some incredibly high percentage of their annual revenue. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Even Amazon is, is winning in the services. You know, they're talking about the, the evolution of the tech economy from uh, gadgets and hardware to services. You know, Apple is doing that transition now. And, but even Amazon, whose business is supposed to be to sell physical products and ship them to you. So I will tell you that this evening, mm -hmm. um, for dinner, we went to Amazon.com <laughs> restaurants, and one of our local restaurants was listed there, and we ordered and arranged for delivery through Amazon. Amazon.com slash restaurants? I think that's what it is. heard of that. It's, wow. it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an Amazon prime benefit, right? But you can do, essentially do, you know, delivery for a lot of restaurants that don't do their own delivery. And as it turns out, not all of our local restaurants are covered, but for example, our favorite hamburger joint was. So it's like, okay, great. And you just go click, click, click. I want one of these, two of those, one of these, you know, pay through your Amazon card, add the tip as you check out. And uh, 45 minutes later, somebody showed up at our front door with hamburgers. Uh, um, it was 
you know, awesome. I mean, I mean, the concept of delivery is nothing new, but the concept of Amazon getting into this. And honestly, there are third-party companies that deal with this kind of stuff too. Oh, sure. I've got a relationship with Amazon. It's like I know them. I trust them. I know if there's a problem, who to, you know, what to do about it. Um, I think that they're leveraging not just their infrastructure, but also their reputation and their knowledge of how, how to handle online transactions. So it was very cool. So yes, they are definitely getting into services. I can speak from personal experience. Yeah, I can see it's not available in my city. So <sighs> well, we, that's the one advantage of being, you know, a stone's throw from Amazon headquarters. Right. And, and of course, I have tons of options for doing the same thing. Uh, including Uber Eats and right. um, tons of other companies that even predate that. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, cool. It is, was very cool. And Randy, I don't think you're going to see that anytime soon. No, living in a rural area. <laughs> We're lucky if we have a restaurant open at 9 p.m. I was going to say the middle of nowhere, Colorado. <laughs> so. Yeah. Anyway. Um, well, let's get into some more fun stuff. Uh, sure. Yeah. Sure. I really like this. Uh, Kevin actually popped it to us, uh, even though he's not here this week. But there's a company that's doing some AI stuff, and they decided to program it to look for prominent scientists that were overlooked by Wikipedia. And not only does it find them, but it'll even write a draft article, which is really kind of cool. And so far, they've found more than 40,000, quote-unquote, prominent scientists that were overlooked. 40,000? 40,000. Yeah, it's crazy numbers. And I think it's and, what is it? it's based on um, attributions or references in uh, published. Yeah, if, if people are, are, or other scientists really, are quoting their work and, and uh, using their, their uh, research to talk about it, that's a, a reference that adds to their prominence. Hmm, Interesting. Yep. And I think that one of the things that the article, which is in The Verge, um, mentions is that um, there's a, I hate to use the word bias, but I'll just use call it that. There's a bias towards men in the Wikipedia articles, the collection of Wikipedia articles about. Um, I'm shocked. Yeah. And as it turns out, um, the AI is, you know, obviously gender indifferent. It just researches and points them out. And as it turns out, a fairly high percentage of uh, of the the people that it's coming up with are overlooked women, which you know makes total sense. Right, and apparently Wikipedia, eighty two percent of the biographies in Wikipedia are written about men. So that's that pretty much shows a bias. I mean, we know that that women have been biased against them in in the sciences and business. And so there's a lot more prominent men just because the women have been held down. But there's still a lot of women that have been overlooked. Yeah, my guess is it's more than 18% of the population that should I be, think so. Should be I think you're right. Sure. Yep, yep. Interesting. The AI can be used for something other than uh, the end of the humanity. Yeah, so. <laughs> yep, they could docu- it could document the end of humanity. No. It'll tell us, it'll tell <laughs> us what, all the, what humanity was up to just before AI crushed them. Yeah, exactly. But there'll be a great Wikipedia article about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it'll be very detailed and cited, yeah. and uh, and probably uh, lots so of notes. 
I didn't go too deep into it. It said it even writes a draft article when it finds one. Is it truly a draft? Because that means that there's like 40,000 draft articles that someone would actually have to review. No, I, I, I think they've only done, according to this article, something like 100 or 400 or something like that. Okay. And they gave an example of one of the drafts, and it's pretty stilted. I mean, it's, okay. it's horrible writing. But the idea is that an editor... I mean, it even provides references and everything sure. so that a human editor can go in and flesh it out and make it a little more interesting. Okay. Yeah, the, the whole point of, uh, you know, providing all the references, that's stuff that's easy for the automation to do as, yes. it's, as, as, part, of its, as part of its work. Turning it into something that is, is interesting to read would be the challenge. Yep. So Very cool. Cool. So I'll, I'll give you an example of... of one that it, it did. I, I won't read the whole thing, but Teresa K. Woodruff is a reproductive scientist at Northwestern University, footnote one. She specializes in gynecology and obstetrics, footnote two. She is a member of, you know, so it goes on like that. And so it's, it's pretty darn dry. It's a list of facts. Yeah, basically. Yep. So, so it doesn't have much interest to it, even if it is showing a lot of amazing things that Teresa Woodruff did. It's interesting because when you think about Wikipedia, you really want it to be a list of facts, but you also want it to be, I don't know. Readable. Well, there's readable, but there's also, so when you, when you look at a number of Wikipedia articles about just about anything, I'll just stick to the tech world. A lot of what the authors have done is interpreted some of the facts, um, assigned sure. some of the facts meaning, uh, relevance, uh, you know, facts are relevant for a variety of reasons that aren't always easily gleaned from just a list of facts. And that's the kind of value add that, that the human editors who are, in, who are knowledgeable about the subject matter bring to the table uh, in situations like this. And the interesting thing that I found from this draft was that she wasn't included in Wikipedia, even though she was already named to Time Magazine's 2013 Most Influential Persons list. You would think news coverage like that would lead to an article. Right. But it didn't. And that's, I think, part of where Wikipedia's model, again, I want to say breaks down in a sense it's really more a matter of it being biased. Who decides what goes into Wikipedia? Nobody and everybody, right? It's, right. it's, it's completely arbitrary. And those kinds of criteria then are easy to overlook. Yeah, I was really surprised that somebody had done an article about me in Wikipedia. It's like I just stumbled across it when I was looking for something else. It's like, really? Wow. And I'm still slightly hurt that there's not one about me. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Uh, So, Well, maybe I'll write one at some point. Yep. The page Leo Notenboom does not exist. Nope. (laughs) Oh, well. Although... Mm. You are referenced in the Macrium Reflect article. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been referenced by random articles in Wikipedia, gosh, maybe for upwards of 10 years. I mean, it's, it's, that part at least has been happening. And that's obviously very cool. I, I appreciate that. But, um, you know, there's just something 
It doesn't, it doesn't scratch the vanity itch. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you're not allowed to write your own. Exactly. Exactly. And in fact, you're probably not allowed to specifically ask someone to write one for you or to, certainly not allowed to pay someone to write one right. for you. It has to Even be though I get spam all the time saying, I can buy my Wikipedia article. Eh, I've already got one. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but... Um, you know, the, the intent is that it be organic, that it be natural. Uh, but you can see that even then, you know, natural and organic doesn't necessarily mean, and I'm certainly not claiming that I'm deserving of a Wikipedia article. There are people who are deserving of a Wikipedia article that aren't there. And that's the underlying problem. And that's what the whole topic is right now. So, you know, maybe a listener out there is a big Wikipedia editor, writer type person that might add Leo Notenboom and Gary Rosenzweig to Wikipedia, because, you know, they both are pretty much pioneers in their fields. Hey, I, I can legitimately claim to be one of the top 10 computer book writers of all time. That's probably... The, the that's most, pretty cool. That's probably one of the, uh, at least by revenue, that's probably one of the most, uh, the, the, the thing that might get me on there. Let's see. And I had the distinction of making the final release of the 8-bit version of Microsoft COBOL. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's history. Exactly. Yeah. Well, isn't that what Wikipedia is all anyway? Yeah. <laughs> so um, there was a so there was an interesting article, a headline that came up up um, earlier, actually today, uh, that I ran across. Apple Mac OS vulnerability paves the way for system compromise with a single click. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, Gary reacted with that sound you just heard. <laughs> So, Gary, this actually led to a somewhat interesting discussion that we tried to, to push into this podcast because it yeah. is a very, very interesting one. You actually have criteria for whether or not to pay attention to some of these, these kind of articles. Yeah, well, it's kind of criteria. It's also kind of a game <laughs> that I play. I see, I see a headline about some sort of exploit that basically saying the world is ending. Um, there's some sort of exploit for your Mac or your iPhone or your Windows PC or your, you know, whatever your television and right away I see it. I say, what, what's the catch here? Why is this clickbait? Because I'm sure this is clickbait. Um, and the catch is usually one of three things. I look for it and I almost always find it. And number one is, does this exploit require physical access to the machine? So a lot of times um, it's like, oh yeah, this is horrible. They, somebody could just take over your computer. But then you read enough and it's like, oh, they actually have to be sitting at your computer to do this. They can't do it online. They actually and it has to, to be already logged there. in. Yeah. So, well, that's, that's the, the uh, second one really is the, uh. they already have to have your password. In other words, in order to get, say, root access to your computer, they have to have you know, admin access or something like that. So you have, you know, your, your passcode on your phone or your password on your computer and whatever exploit they're talking about does not work if they're locked out of it. So that's like number two. And a number three is, um, you know, does it require some malware already installed on the machine? You know, in other words, that once you have this piece of malware, it could actually then take, go to this next level. And, you know, get access to something else or whatever. Um, usually, almost all these articles, no matter how scary they sound, um, one of these three things or s several of them are needed for it to actually be valid. So, um, 
So yeah, it's not. Uh, and then as soon as I see that, I'm like, well, then it's not really that scary. <laughs> I mean, because there's a lot worse. If somebody has physical access to your machine, there's a lot they can do to it, including the uh, that uh, the hack known as a the hammer, where you take a <laughs> hammer and bash the computer, which will destroy your computer just as well as mal- malware will. I lost my data. It will erase all your data and everything. It's just, I can't believe every, believe it or not, everybody's computer is vulnerable to this hack. Actually, um, it doesn't really erase your data. It just encrypts it in a very novel it. way. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, without Fractal a, yeah. storage. And, you know, and the, and the, if you're already logged in, to your account, and of course, there are multiple way, levels of that, you know, because somebody could, you could walk away from the computer and it's actually, you're not logged out, and somebody has access to some things, and then to get access to other things, it asks them to verify, you know, that they're, they have your password or whatever. But, you know, pretty much, if somebody is already at the level you are on your machine, there's tons of bad things they can do to it. And right. whatever little tiny hack they're talking about, it's just one of the many bad things that can be done to your computer, um, or to your information if somebody's sitting at your machine and is logged in. And the same thing with uh, if there's malware installed that's running on the computer, something that, that you know, is, is installed as an application or as a process, um, it got past the barrier of, you know, do you, are you sure you want to install this? Please enter your password to verify that you want this installed. Then there's tons of stuff that it could do. And most of these hacks fail these three tests and, are not really, you know, that big of a deal. And now, Leo, you had some additional criteria that I thought was also very good. Well, I, I take a look at it from, actually, I've only got two criteria, but my first one is a bundle of your first three, and that is, how likely is this to impact the average consumer, right? The average computer user. How likely are they actually to see this particular vulnerability impact their computer, their data, their life, their whatever? Um, the answer is frighteningly not very often, regardless of how horrific the headline seems to be. And then the other criteria is simply, okay, is there anything they can do about it? Because if there's nothing they can do, um, then again, what's the point of raising the alarm? Again, for the average consu- for the average computer user, if there's nothing you can do, then all you've really done is frighten them. Now, admittedly, sometimes what you can do is be more vigilant or just keep doing what you're doing. Make sure your anti-malware tools are up to date or remember not reboot to click on Reboot your router. Or reboot your router or whatever. I mean, any number of those kinds of things. Those are often specific steps that you can take. Um, but again, those are things in a lot of cases that people should already be doing. So it's not so much, is there something they can do? It's should they just keep doing what they're doing? So those are the two things that I tend to measure against. Now, I have to admit... I'm, I'm getting, honestly, really tired of clickbait headlines from um, what I really want to consider uh, reputable news sources. And yet, uh, because of the environment that these publications are publishing into, they're almost forced, like the regular news, they're almost forced to devise incentives for people to click and fear is an amazing incentive and people do click and often more often than not they then get to the article where they don't understand anything and again they walk away with nothing more than fear this doesn't serve the audience at all 
Um, and that's, that I find really, really frustrating. I wish that there were a real solution to that. But in today's clickbait environment, I'm honestly not sure what that solution would be. Other than people like you and me, Gary, saying, hey, you know what? When people ask us about XYZ problem, no. That one you don't have to worry about. Just keep doing what you're doing and you'll be fine. Yeah, and a lot of times, like the original issue is brought to light by security researchers who are publishing something for other security people. Yes. You know, they're, you know, and that's their job, you know, is, is these tiny little levels of security saying, hey, this app or this process can be better. And then what happens is then a more general publication picks that up and then writes their clickbait headline and talks about it, you know. So it's, it's not necessarily that the research shouldn't be done or that those researchers shouldn't be publishing what they find. Right. It's just that at some point, I think the the news outlets need to be more responsible and say this is this is a really you know this is not a general public kind of interesting story. Uh, this is just something down for you know. The- and honestly, what I think you and I and and folks in our in our niche um, have an almost a responsibility to do is to take a look at some of those more technical ones, like even this one, the 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 one we're using as an example, and saying, um, you know, here's what it is. Here's some lessons to learn. Here are some things that the average consumer actually should be doing differently, like the reboot router one from a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that makes sense. That That's something that people probably ought to do or make sure that their routers or firmware are getting updated if it can be. Um, you know, the, we do have that kind of responsibility to turn some of this more obscure security research and the results thereof into, for lack of a better term, plain English and something that's actionable by quote unquote real people. Yep, exactly. Cool. So anyway, anyway, you're listening, not panicking. Yes. And I mean, it's part of it's my nature, right? I'm not a panicky person. I, I, I typically don't, I'm very skeptical in general, but I'm especially skeptical when somebody throws clickbait headlines out there. And, um, in most of the time, most of the time, I'm right, and I live a much more peaceful life because of it. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yep. So what, what are you guys going to be doing in the coming week now? Oh, boy. I, I got to catch up. I am actually starting to um, write the next edition. God, I don't even know what edition it is. 11th edition of my, of my, my iPad book an actual physical printed book with a publisher. It's like so unusual nowadays. I mean, every so 20th Barnes, century, every Barnes and Noble I go into, I mean, their computer protections are gone or they're just reduced to kind of this couple shelves or something like that. But, but I do actually have a book that I have a publisher that wants me to update it. So I'm actually working on that now. That's uh, you know, Apple's, beta testing iOS 12 and the rumors of new iPads coming out. Um, so I am working on updating that book. Um, every time I do it, I say, well, this might be the last time. Um, so I'm going to say that again, this may be the last time, <laughs> but uh, certainly when this book is done, when I do, whatever I do finish the last edition and my publisher says, yeah, there's not enough demand for print books anymore. Um, then that probably will be my last print, you know, computer book. But uh, but for now, working on that. Do you plan to continue to make them available in digital form? 
Well, it's not up to me for this particular book. It would be up to the publisher. But uh, um, as far as like myself, I mean, I've I've really switched to the courses, the online courses for for my, uh, you know, my educational materials, I guess, that I sell. Uh, So I don't know. I wouldn't say never again, but uh, I think for writing for a big publisher, this is probably getting getting close to the end but who knows i could be three more editions before you actually get there um i'm i'm amazed that it still sells well enough Uh, i've always been amazed by um the uptake on uh, the paper editions of my digital books yeah i uh um, I, as you know, I, I, I've always self-published and I've always published digital first. Honestly, paper was an afterthought about eight or 10 years ago. And the uptake on that is what convinced me to continue to do that. Um, it just, it, there are people that just prefer paper, especially for reference works. Um, but yeah, that's part of my upcoming week too, is that I've got a, a couple of books that um, are in need of a refresh. Uh, you know, they still have, uh, you know, examples from Windows 7 or Windows 8. And, and, you know, here we've been with Windows 10 for the last two or three years now already. It's it's time. Uh, people are asking questions. So uh, those kinds of things are happening here, too. But like I said, in my case, it's all about updating the digital content and then um, eventually potentially updating the uh, the paper version as well. Cool. What about you, Randy? I'm just going to be plugging along. Um still trying to uh, sell this house and uh, get into another one. And just, it's a long process. I mean, and then the horrible part comes moving. <laughs> yeah. 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 Packing everything so, up, packing everything. Yep. One thing I did is we, we sold the office, which is the little tiny house next door. And that one we sold really quickly and easily because it was cheap. So Kit moved into our guest house, which actually doesn't have Wi-Fi in it. So I bought um, a new outdoor directional Wi-Fi antenna that uh, is, all you have to do is plug in uh, Ethernet to it and you get power over Ethernet to make the thing work. And, and now it floods our backyard with a nice strong Wi-Fi signal so that she can cool. be online out there. Oh, cool. That was kind of neat. Uh, 75 bucks for this ingenious brand uh, outside antenna. And they have, well, this one was only 2.4 um, gigahertz and, and uh, doesn't have the, the five gigahertz, but you know, it's like, well, that's what you need you would, that for. That's what you would want for distance. Anyways, yeah, exactly. 2.4, five would yep. just be much less distance. We, uh, I have both in my house and the five does not reach the, uh, the extremities of the house, but 2.4, nice and strong. So, you know, that's, uh, that makes sense. A, a yeah. device like that would be 2.4. It's funny. And if we end up in the house that I'm, I'm planning on or that we're aiming for, I'm going to take it with me and actually mount it on the house and point it downtown so that when I'm in town, I can still be on my home internet. Oh. <laughs> Good idea. Because it's a small town. I can do that. Yeah, no kidding. What amazes me is the $75 price point. And for some reason, and this, you know, is me putting my old fart hat on for a minute. Um, 20 years ago, uh, when Wi-Fi was first getting rolled out within Microsoft, I looked into the original um, 802.11 access points that they were using. They were like $500 a piece yeah. um, for just the bare bones. 
And it was, I mean, it was awesome. It was cool. We got to take our laptops into meetings and all that kind of stuff. But man, the stuff you can get now is just incredible for not yeah. that much money. So the way we did it when we had the house next door, I mean, it's a third of a mile away. We're, we're on 40 acres here. So, you know, next door isn't really necessarily really close. Too far for Ethernet. So sometime back, I bought the, the UHF point-to-point digital radio system so that I can extend the home network to the office. And it worked really well. Uh, and I think that was like $1,000. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. Yep. And I'm sure they'd be much cheaper now. but and, and, of course, you can get two of these ingenious boxes and just point them at each other and, and do right. the same thing <laughs> for 150 bucks. You know? Exactly. So, exactly. It's, it's incredible what you can do now. Yep. All right, guys. We've wasted an hour. Congratulations. Yeah. We're good at that. Yep. So the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh36. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye.